dresses the living church with Christ as the head. And he uses that picture of the body held together with the head who is in control. He talks about the new family of God, God bringing people from every nation, tribe, race, tongue, and, and bringing them together and making them one family in God, which was very poignant in that time, and we'll even touch on again this morning, in that Ephesus was a multicultural city. There were, were, there, it was an intersection of the world in that time, and it was a trading port. And so uh, this idea that Paul shares is that we're, we're a new family in God, and, and it's not the outward that defines our membership to that family or our part of that family. It's what God has done in us. And then he finally addresses Christian living and conduct. That as believers, there's a way we're supposed to live. And he addresses marriage and parenting. And he addresses the relationship between uh, the language at that time was a, a, a slave owner and the slave. It's more akin to what we would now call an employer and an employee. Now, don't go to work tomorrow and tell your boss that you're, right, you're a slave. That's not the case. But, but in context... In context, that would, and, he, and he defines and, and says, listen, this is an appropriate way that you should, the master and the slave, should relate to each other, Christian living and conduct. And, and then on the heels of these things, we come to Ephesians 6, where he says, finally, now in light of everything I've just set up and everything I've just said to you and everything I've given you instruction about, now take your stand. Why? Because these are the places where the enemy is going to attack you. I'd encourage you, by the way, did you do your homework? Did you read the book of Ephesians? I hope you did. I'm not going to check, but God knows. No, just kidding. He does, but do me a favor. Do yourself a favor this week. Read the book of Ephesians. Read it through. Listen to it. If you have the Bible app, listen to it. Get rid of those chapter and verse delineations or those divisions and just listen to it as one cohesive thought and you'll capture some of what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Ephesus. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. The Roman soldier and the Roman Empire were well known and vast in fact, I have a, a map that I'd like to show you. This was the Roman Empire from around A.D. 60, 61, which is when Paul is, they, they date this letter to the, the church in Ephesus around that time. Through around A.D. 120, this is what the Roman Empire looked like. It st extended from the north in Great Britain, from what's called Hadrian's Wall, which is still there today, uh, all the way through Spain into North Africa, all the way to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the east, covering modern-day Turkey, covering parts of Iraq and Iran and Persia. Of course, uh, Palestine and, and Judea were part of that, and we're familiar with that when we talk about Jesus and his life, uh, that the Roman Empire were the ones that were in control. We'll even read a little bit about Pilate today. The Roman Empire was vast. It is one of the largest empires in the history of the world. Between 70 and 80 million people were a part of the Roman Empire at any given point. About 20% of the world's population at that time were under Roman rule. The Roman soldier was a key part of that. You don't conquer nations without soldiers. And so 
the Roman soldier was a professional soldier. Uh, in, you know, if you're familiar with Roman history, they weren't always an empire. For a while, they were a republic, and there were a lot of wars. Sounds a lot like Star Wars, and that's, I think, where uh, George Lucas got a lot of his inspiration, right? They were a republic, and they became an empire. And, uh, and as they made that shift, they started training up professional soldiers called legionaries uh, who served in so many different ways. And, and what's amazing is that the Roman Empire documented everything. So mo- this, this is not conjecture. There is historical record of all of the things that we're going to talk about today. These legionaries, um, at the height of the Roman Empire, there was between 300,000 and 400,000 full-time soldiers that served Rome. The legionaries were Roman citizens, and they served for 25 years, and they were deployed all around this empire. They were paid well. It was a good job to have, and, uh, and at their retirement, they served after 25 years. They could retire, and they received a great bonus, and they received land. And so it was a, it was a, desir- a desirable thing to be a part of the Roman Empire. If you were not a Roman, you could still be a part of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman army. There was around 300 non-Roman soldiers, and they were called auxilia, auxilia, and we still use the term today, auxiliary, right? And so they were a, a part of the military, an extension of the military. They were trained, they were equipped. They didn't have as many of the divisions and as, as many of the tools, but but nonetheless were a force to be reckoned with. And the way that Rome kept them under servitude is if you were serving Rome as a Briton, they wouldn't keep you in Britain, they would move you somewhere else. If you were a Spaniard, you would be in another part of the world, and it kind of kept that control in place. The result of which is a city like Ephesus would have had a garrison of Roman soldiers and a garrison of non-Roman soldiers who would have been from somewhere else. You get the picture? So it adds to the multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic nature of what the city of Ephesus was. Now, that being said, everybody knew what a Roman soldier was. Everybody knew. And so as Paul starts using the language of the armor, every one of these soldiers, or these citizens, citizens rather, would have known what Paul was talking about. As familiar as we talk about a police officer, just picture for your mind, for a second, in your mind, a police officer, a modern-day police officer. I can almost guarantee we're picturing pretty much the same thing, right? The, the uniform, the, the, the armor under, right, the bulletproof vest, you've got the belt that's got the, like, the club, it's got your gun, it's got your, you know, the, the magazines, you've got your your, uh, the hand, handcuffs and all of that, right? We, we kind of see the same picture. It would have been that way for the people in Ephesus and for the church reading this letter. So it wasn't something uh, unfamiliar to them. By the way, the auxilia also served for 25 years. And at the end of the time of their service, they also were paid well. And at the end of the time of their service, they didn't receive land, but what they did get was probably even more important to them. They received Roman citizenship. And it was extended to their children as well. Now think about this. This is the overlaying of history and scripture. And the the part that we don't always see. When Paul says that because of Jesus, you are now a citizen of God's kingdom. 
and not just a citizen, but you are a son, what he is contrasting is the kingdom that is, was established at that time. And he's saying, you got to wait 25 years. You got to wait 25 years. But with God, there's no waiting. You're, you're a citizen now. You see how that, that would have had a, a deeper meaning and a deeper impact. And so it's important for us to see that. So why do I share all of that? For that reason. We have to look at this passage through the lens that, and the picture that Paul is trying to paint here, the overlay of the culture and the history. Uh, we didn't live during that time, and so it's hard for us to imagine. So we're going to use this map, and then we're going to use some pictures here in a second as well. So today we're going to talk about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. I've got to, my own little tongue-tied. In fact, if someone could grab me some water, that would be... I was singing really hard today. Thank you, Tom. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. That's a tongue twister. You can try to say that at home five times fast on your own. Would you agree this morning that truth is important to God? Right? All across the room. Truth is important to God. Why? Why is truth important to God? Because he is truth. It's not just because he, he, uh, he, like, he has an aversion to people who lie, right? It's not just a convenience thing or an ease thing. Lies are contrary to the very nature of who God is. The truth stands in contrast to the primary identity and mode of attack of the enemy, which is lies. And so God is all about truth. He has to be. He has to be. Because the enemy, Satan, is a liar. He is a liar. In fact, if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what does he do with Adam and Eve? He lies to them. He calls into question the truth claims of God. Did God really say? That phrase sums up the entire approach and plan of attack of the enemy. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. It sums up the entire plan and, and, and method of attack of the enemy. is to call into question the truth claims of God. He still does it. When it says that, Paul says that, that when the evil day comes, or the day of evil comes today, that that is the way that the enemy will call into question the goodness and the truth of God in regards to his plan, his purpose, the goodness of Jesus Christ and the centrality of Christ, the unity of the body and the unity of the spirit, God's new family and our identity as sons and daughters, right? And the way that we're supposed to live. Did God really say you shouldn't do that? You shouldn't live that way. You shouldn't have that attitude. Did God really say? He's, he's not creative, the enemy is not creative. He's predictable. You know this. He's predictable. But he's good at what he does. John 10.10, 10, we know, says, Jesus says that the enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's, that's the only things he knows how to do. But Jesus has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I love that passage, of course, because it means that we're created to thrive. You were made to thrive. John 8, 42 through 44 says this. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Which is my, why is my language not clear to you? 
And then he answers the question, because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It is his identity. It is his nature. Where God is love, God is truth. The enemy is a murderer. He hates and he lies. It's all he knows how to do. So truth is absolutely foundational to Christ and to to God. And it must be to us as well. Which is why Paul starts with truth. It's why he jumps in at that point. We have to know this, that the unraveling of our stand, our ability to stand is unraveled when we believe the lie. If you start believing the lies of the enemy, you cannot stand. No matter how hard you try, he will knock you down every single time. And it's got nothing to do with your performance, what kind of righteous life you live. And we'll talk about that in a second as well. He will knock you on your rear end every single time when you believe the lie. It's a great question to ask. Why was Jesus born? Why was Jesus born? And I know that the answers we would give would overlap a little bit, right? Jesus came to save sinners. He came, right, to, 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 to die on the cross. Uh, and there's, there's a couple of right, a few right answers. But, but the one that Jesus actually says in his own words is important for us today. Jesus said in John 18, 36 through 38, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, remember this in light of he's standing before Pontius Pilate. He's standing before the Roman governor of that region. There are Roman soldiers and Roman citizens all around him in the greatest kingdom, the greatest empire that's ever existed on the face of the earth. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Jesus came into this world to testify to the truth. To the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate's response What is truth? Here is a man who is established within the hierarchy and, and is a close to the top of the hierarchy of the greatest empire, one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. And when it comes down to the question of what truth is, he doesn't have an answer. Why? Because he's believed the lie. What is truth? Of course, Jesus would say, I am the truth. I am the truth. I want to show you this, this, picture, this picture of these two Roman soldiers. The one on the left would have been a Roman legionary. The one on the right would have been more akin to the auxiliary or auxilia uh, soldier. You can see the difference in the armament. The one on the left has the metal sheets, the metal plates 
that go across the Roman Empire was pretty amazing in what they were able to produce and manufacture. Um, the one on the right, of course, he's wearing chainmail, um, but but there you can see the similarities, the helmet, and of course, these are modern pictures, right? Um, but because of the historical record we have, we can recreate pretty accurately what we know was uh, the 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 military garb for that time. Now, there were also, there was cavalry and there were archers and there were all kinds of specialists just like we have in the military today. But the backbone of the Roman army were these guys. They were the ones that patrolled the streets. They were the ones that enforced Roman rule and Roman law. Today, we're gonna talk about that belt of truth and then we'll move on to the breastplate of righteousness in a minute. You know, the belt seems pretty insignificant in con- con- when compared to the other articles for the for the Roman soldier, right? It's just it's just a belt. Now you know this. If if you're not wearing a belt and you need a belt for your pants to stay up, a belt's pretty essential, right? But it's not it's not always it's not like a fashion statement. There's now there's some expensive belts out there, but for the most part, belt is just very utilitarian, right? And in this case, that's exactly what it was. It served a few different functions. First of all, it was a utility belt. You can see on, for both of these guys, they have on one side, they have their sword, and the other side, they, were, they had a dagger. And so the Roman, uh, the Roman legionary was equipped for like a battlefield battle, but they were also equipped with a dagger for close contact fighting or close quarters, uh, like in a city like Ephesus. And so this belt, along with that, it held other implements and other tools. Um, it also was key in holding together the various components of the armor, specifically the breastplate. See, that the, the breastplate went on and then the belt went around that breastplate. And it was the belt which, when linked together with the breastplate, would stop it from moving out of place in the midst of the battle. Because the last thing you needed when you were fighting was for your armor to get kind of caught up and prevent motion. I mean, ultimately, you would die. And so the belt kind of held everything together. It also had a third role, which is not as clear, but when you look at on the front of uh, the, both of these guys, there's some strips of leather with metal hanging down the front of their loins. Very important. Guarding a very sensitive area, right? Am I right? Yeah, all the guys are like, uh-huh. <laughs> Guarding a very sensitive and important area of the human anatomy. See, a, a strike to, to the loins, to the groin area, would incapacitate a soldier. You could take a hit to other parts of the body. Of course, if your head gets lopped off, you're, right, you're done. But, but for the most part, you could get struck. You, you could hit in the leg. You could get hit in the arm. But a strike or a blow to, to the groin would completely incapacitate a soldier. And so the, the belt helped protect that part of the body, a very sensitive part of the body. So you better believe that every one of these soldiers went into battle making sure, right, I got my belt on. Interestingly, the belt was one of the, the pieces of armor that was worn all the time. So even when they weren't in battle or on patrol, they would always have their belt. They would always be wrapped with that belt and have that sword and that dagger at the ready. So why truth as a belt? We're going to draw 
two, two pictures from this. First is this, truth is the buckle, it's the thing that holds our faith in place. I said this before, when we believe the lie, our faith unravels, our ability to stand ravel, unravels. And so truth is central, it is absolutely key to holding our faith in place. Just like, uh, and we'll talk about its role with the breastplate a little bit more in a minute. But truth is non-negotiable in the life of the believer. It's non-negotiable. And here's the thing. We live in a time where truth is subjective. The world around us says, well, truth can be whatever you want it to be. And people and believers in the church have believed that lie. Because it sounds good. Because lies always sound good. It becomes the unbuckling and the undoing of their very fabric, the very core of who we are as believers in Christ Jesus. If Jesus is truth, if the very nature of God is true, and we start giving into this idea that, hey, whatever works for you works for you, we're done. Don't bother putting on the rest. It doesn't matter. You don't have a leg to stand on. Yet it is the place where the enemy keeps coming against us in the church over and over and over. He is relentless and every day is a day of evil. Because you get out of, the bed, out of bed in the morning, maybe not even before you get out of bed, and immediately the enemy starts calling into question the truth of God in your life. And how readily you obey or listen, rather believe and listen to those lies really determines your effectiveness. And so many of us get to the end of our days and the end of our weeks and the end of a year going, oh, I just feel beat down. It's not because the enemy is so powerful. He's defeated. He's defeated. He is a defeated foe. Jesus secured the victory. The only reason he has any effect in the life of the believer is because we allow ourselves to believe the lie. And why do we believe the lie? Because we don't know the truth. Why is knowing God so critical to our lives? Why, why is it so central here at Thrive Church? In our mission statement, in, in Thriving Life, we're going to talk about that. Knowing God is at the core of who we are. Because when I know God, I know truth. But if I walk away from and, and neglect the disciplines of my life that draw me into the presence of God, that draw me into His Word to know what the truth is, I will believe the lie. And it will undo me. It will undo me. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 33 says this, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 32 there, one of the most misquoted passages of Scripture. You know, the truth will set you free, Right? Say that. You hear people quote it. The truth will set you free. No, 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 no. You can't do verse 32 without verse 31. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And when you are my disciples, you will know me. That's why we talk about discipleship. 
Discipleship is the process of knowing and following Jesus with our lives, not just being able to have a conversation about him. Discipleship has to result in action in our lives. It's not an exercise in just our, 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 in academics, in information. It is about us walking out what we know of who Jesus is and walking with him. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 16, 12 through 13 says, Jesus writes this or says this, I have much to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So God, by nature, is truth. Jesus is the truth, the life and the way, and the Spirit will guide us in truth. Is truth important to God? Critical. Should truth be important to us? The top of the list. Like a belt that holds everything else together. When we start to believe the lie and we ignore the belt of truth, it will hang up our ability to move in the Spirit. My ability to fend to counter the attack of the enemy, will be diminished when I remove that belt of truth. Paul knew this, and he paints that clear picture. The other thing about the belt of truth is this. As with the Roman soldier, as it covered a very sensitive part of his body, that the truth guards the very sensitive parts of our lives. Of course, covering that groin area. In fact, in, in a lot of translations, the belt is called a loin belt. The picture here is this. It is, it is through that part of our bodies. I'm trying to be all vague, right? We all know what we're talking about. If you don't, just ask someone after. We're all like, there's a few junior high age people in right mentality just giggling in the room. It is, the, it is the, the part of our body that functions in reproduction. It is the flow of life for us. We understand this. It is, it is the parts of our body, both male and female, that allow us to have offspring and children. What Paul is, is saying here, at a deeper level, is this. What is being reproduced in your life? What is being reproduced in your life? life? Are you a person of truth? Is what's not just coming into you, but what, what is coming out of you and being reproduced in your life? And we so quickly default to the mouth, right? It's the mouth, what we say. But the picture here is a deeper one. There's a, a genetic, a DNA picture here that we will reproduce the lies that we believe in our lives. And really, there's, there's no better analogy for that than of raising children. Of raising children. That we pass on to our kids genetically predispositions and traits that will be visible in their lives, both physically but also behaviorally. And the study of this in modern science is pretty mind-blowing. The things that are passed on to our children, the predispositions, and, and the brokenness in our lives is passed on. 
And God says, I've come that, that there would be a truth covering over those parts of our lives that would allow us to reproduce truth. To reproduce truth. That we would be a people who would propagate truth on the face of the earth and stand in opposition to a world that says whatever you believe is okay. And not to do it weirdly or militantly, or right? Because we can go there as Christians sometimes. But it's really more the outflow of our lives. The overflow of our lives. But if we are not protected by the truth, what we pr- propagate and what we, uh, what we sow into will be a lie. And so we need to stand our ground. We need to move on to the breastplate of righteousness. I grew up in the 80s, which means I watched Karate Kid. Anyone? Right? We all know that movie, whether you've seen it or not, you understand this, right? Daniel's son comes to Mr. Miyagi, he's getting beat up, and Mr. Miyagi says, I'll, I'll teach you karate, right? Let's go out and you can paint the fence and wax the car, right? Wax on, wax off. This way, that way, and right, sand the deck, right? And, and Daniel's son is getting frustrated, right? He's frustrated because he's like, you said you were going to teach me karate, but I'm just doing your stinking chores. <laughs> Until that moment where Mr. Miyagi throws a punch at him, right? And he blocks it. And there's like that, oh, this is what's going on, and right? And he starts, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, and... And it all starts coming together. You're going to all go home and watch that movie now. It's interesting, though, that his training was not just defensive. So often as believers, we feel like and we live our lives on the defensive from the enemy. Stop. It's not who you are. See, the training that Daniel received was both defensive and offensive. That when you countered that block, there was an opportunity to strike the enemy. That the enemy leaves himself vulnerable when he comes against you. Now let's transition this to our enemy. When he comes against you and says, this is who you are, he leaves himself open because he knows it's a lie. And if you know the truth, you can counter what he has just said as you defend the blow and then strike a blow back at the enemy. And it works this way. You're not valuable. Boom. I am the righteousness of Christ. You have no meaning. Boom. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Come on. We read scripture and we're like, oh, this is all theological and theoretical. No, this is as practical. And if you need to do the moves in your room in the morning, do it. Do it. You'll never amount to anything. Block. I am the head and not the tail. I'm above and not below. Right? You'll never, you'll never do anything godly in your life. I'm the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I've been clothed with righteousness. It's practical. Why do we need to know the word? And we'll talk about the sword later on. But do you see how practical this is? Paul is not trying to just, just use an analogy. He's trying to equip the saints for warfare. 
We are in the fight of our lives, and we better start acting like it. The Romans, as we saw in that picture, in fact, we can put that back up, both breastplates, breastplates time for more water, the one on the left, of course, the legionary, the one on the right, the auxilia, but they served the same purpose. They guarded the vital organs. And whereas the, the groin did not have, it was left really exposed, the chest has a rib cage that affords a little bit more protection. But they understood this, if you took a blow to the heart, if you took a sword to the heart, you were done. And so you guard the vital organs. That's what the breastplate did. Most importantly, the heart. Most importantly, the heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. So why righteousness? Why does Paul say this is a breastplate? of righteousness, not a breastplate of heart protection. He uses the word righteousness, and can I be just frank? We, we get stuck on that word. We hear the word righteousness, and for many people in the church, we check out because we do not think of ourselves as righteous. Amen? You are. I want to talk about what righteousness is not. Righteousness is not piety. And a pattern of piety. It's not me doing certain things and going through the motions to try and please God. That is not righteousness. It is a lie. That is, in fact, a lie from the enemy. Acting a certain way and doing certain things. Or someone told me, hey, here's five things you need to do to be more righteous. Next time someone says that to you, you get my email inbox is full of five things and seven things and ten things, and I just want to gag on it. Stop with the lists already. It's a lie from the enemy. Do more. Try harder. Measure up. These people existed in Scripture. They were called Pharisees. They were called Pharisees. See, their outward appearance looked one way, but their hearts were messed up. Their hearts were messed up because they believed a lie. And the goal was this. So many believers live this way. That righteousness is this. That I project a certain image and, and try and keep in what's really inside so that people don't really know who I am. That's not righteousness. You know, Billy Graham passed away. You might have heard that. You know that Billy Graham never, ever, ever, ever said this, and I haven't listened to all of his sermons or read all of his books, but I'm confident in this, that he never said, hey, here's how I, how I figured out to attain righteousness in my own strength, and if you just do what I do, if that was Billy Graham's approach, that name would not be familiar to us. So what was Billy's approach? Let me introduce you to the one who has the authority to declare you righteous. I'm nothing. Right? There was a motorcade that took his body back to North Carolina. And the commentary from 
uh, from his son was this. <laughs> My dad would have a really hard time with this because the focus is all on him, and he never wanted the focus to be him. When they opened the Billy Graham Library, which I had the, the opportunity to visit about 10 years ago, it, he, he, as they opened on opening day, as he walked through, he kept just saying, there's too much of me, there's too much of me, there's too much of me. I remember get, coming out of that place and sitting on a bench, undone by the humility of a man who just kept pointing people to Jesus. Righteousness is not piety. It's not a book you read or steps that you just say, oh, I'm going to do this and this and this. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a gift from God through Jesus Christ. And you can't work to earn it. You can't do anything to make yourself better or worthy. This word righteousness and justification. Righteousness and justification. Righteousness and justification in the Greek are the same word. In fact, it's like we take two, these two words and, and, and we join them together. And while there's layers to their meaning, they essentially get us back to the same place. Justification is this. It's God's announcement over my life that I am sinless. That when I come to Jesus Christ and I, I, I invite him and ask him to be the Lord of my life. And I surrender my life to him when I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says that you are saved and at that moment, at that very moment, you were declared as one who is justified. I remember this from, from college. It stuck with me. An easy way to remember what it means. Just as if... I'd never sinned. You are justified before God. That he no longer considers your sin. He looks at you through the, the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ as one who is sinless. It is his proclamation and his declaration over your life that your sin has been removed. And all you had to do was say, Jesus, I receive you. That's it. No ten steps. No program, no nothing. It is just simply surrendering yourself at the foot of the cross. But it also becomes God's life proceeding from me. That when he declares you as righteous, as he justifies you and says, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That God sees you that way and then he says, now I empower you to live that way. That the overflow of what I've done in your heart would now be visible to those around you, but be careful to guard your heart. Why? Because the enemy will come against you and work every single day to condemn your heart. To tell you that you're not the righteousness of God. To tell you that you still have mistakes. And can we just agree, we still struggle with sin. If you struggle with sin, would you just raise your hand? All right? All of us struggle with sin. God takes us through a process of sanctification. And that is the working out of our faith where we say, God, I want to please you more today than I did yesterday. What sanctification is not is, is telling us that 
well, you let that righteousness slip a little bit. Once we are under the blood, we are under the blood. Once Jesus is covered our lives, God only sees us that way. And then there's a, a responsibility on our part to not believe the lie of the enemy and slip back into our old ways. So where is it then that the enemy wants to attack? He's going to come against your heart. Your identity, the very core of who you are, is the thing he's going to call into question in the same way he did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say that you're sinless? Not that thing. Not that sin. There's no way. Because that thing's too bad and you know. No one else knows, but you know. Oh, you're right. You're right. I, I don't think I should even go to church today because, you know, because I'm a hypocrite. I can't tell that person about Jesus because I know what's really on the inside of me and I'm disqualified. Who am I to tell someone else about Jesus? And the enemy knocks us on our butts. And day after day after day, he says, I just want to get you on your rear end because you're not effective when you're sitting down. An army is not effective on the ground. And so if the enemy can just knock you on your rear end... He's happy. He's got you where he wants you to be. He gets us on our heels, getting our guard up. And we look like that boxer in the corner of the ring who's just getting pummeled. And you get to a point you're like, there's just no more fight left in me. Because you've just believed the lie for so long. I'm so bad. I've messed up. I can't get ahead. This is the best that's ever going to get. I've been trying for so long. Things don't seem to go my way. I can't seem to catch a break. This is my lot in life. Church, you don't have to yield to this. You don't. It is not the voice of the Father. It is not the voice of the Son. It is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is only the voice of the enemy. You are not a victim. You are not a victim. You are a victor. You are not a victim. You are a victor. And the breastplate of righteousness is in place to guard your heart. Not to so that what's really in here will get out. It's so that the lies of condemnation will not get in. And as that blows, the enemy's blow deflects off your chest. You come back at him and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When the enemy strikes, it's an opportunity for a counterstrike. But we have to be ready. We have to be equipped. We have to be suited up. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Therefore, there is now no... There's no condemnation for who? For those who try harder. For those who just try to perform that God would maybe love them a little bit more. No, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is at the center. He is absolutely at the center. 1 John 3 verse 19 through 22. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence if our hearts condemn us we know that God is greater than our hearts 
and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Your heart, spurred on by the lies of the enemy, will try to condemn you every single day of your life. It just will. But when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, what we are making a declaration about is this. I am the righteousness. I stand clean, sinless, justified before God. I don't have to perform. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I've struggled with that verse through my life. Interestingly, in Romans 7 and 8, Paul, the, the battle in his life is evident. Wow, why do I do the things I'm not supposed to do? And I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do. And there's this back and forth and back and forth. And it's, can we just be honest? It's exhausting. But thanks be to God for his son, Jesus Christ who has broken once and for all the power of sin and death in my life. Are you battling? If you are, it's okay. But don't give up. Don't give up. So my question to you this morning is, where do you stand? And do you stand? Or are you on the ground? Have you just accepted and, and it said, you know, this defensive posture is as good as it's going to get, and I'll go to church so I can feel a little bit better, but I know the rest of the week is just going to suck. Because the enemy's going to come, and I'm going to be depressed and stuck. And believe me, I'm not saying, like, like there are things that we have to deal with in our lives. We, we need help. We need people to come alongside of us, which is why an army, by, by definition, is more than one person. But there is a point of responsibility where we say, Lord, I'm going to choose today to just take one step or maybe just get up off the ground and just try and stand. But I'm not going to do it in my own strength. I'm going to do it in the strength of the Lord. Finally, brothers. Right? Put on the armor of God and of His power, His might, and allow Him to flow through the equipping of your person, the armor of God. I want to invite you to bow your heads this morning and close your eyes. I'm going to give two points of response this morning, and I believe that this is a message that requires a response from us. The first is this, without anyone looking around for privacy, just to honor each other. The first is this, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never received him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, if you've never received from him the justification and the righteousness that he offers to you, this morning this is available to you. It's free. It's a gift. And he wants to bestow that on you and lavish that on you. If that's you, I simply want you to do this. No one's looking around. Would you just look up at me and allow our eyes to meet? I'm going to move from the, 
my left, your right of the room, over to the right. But if that's you and you want to say yes to Jesus this morning, would you just look up at me so we can agree? Just moving to the center section. I never want a Sunday to go by that we don't give an opportunity for someone to respond to the gracious and amazing gift over to the last section, your left, my right. Anyone this morning? Okay. All right. Here's the second point of application. This is going to be a bold because I didn't ask you to stand yet, right? You guys all, you noticed that. He's like, you didn't ask us to stand. What's going on? If the enemy's had you in a place where you're just on the defensive, on the defensive, on the defensive, and you're not seeing the traction, and you're not feeling equipped to not just defend yourself, but to then strike a blow against the enemy and see that forward progress, if that's you, to no matter what degree you feel that, and you are ready to take a stand. I want you to do just that and stand. Would you stand right now? And don't let the voice of the enemy say, well, people are going to look at you and wonder. No, they're not. That's a lie of the enemy. We're going to celebrate with you. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else this morning, you'd say, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of being on the defensive. I'm ready to bring the fight. I'm ready to be equipped for battle all around this room. You can open your eyes. That's okay. We're in... this, is a, this is a bold declaration. This is the army of God standing up and saying, it's on. It's on. So when we all stand together, if you're standing close to someone who's standing, already standing, just lay hands on them. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Well, let's pray. In Jesus' name, O oh, oh Father, I, I declare over this congregation, Lord, that the lies of the enemy would be broken. The bondage, Lord, and the shackles of those lies would be removed once and for all. Lord, in places, Lord, where we've given up and said, I, there's no way out. God, that we would see the turnaround that comes from the empowering of your mighty hand in our lives. God, I pray that we would be a congregation that is fully equipped, fully armored up, fully ready to engage every lie of the enemy, to deflect it and to strike back, driving back the power of sin and death and darkness in this world. Not in our own strength, but through the strength in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us as a body of believers, as your mighty army, as ones who are no longer victims, but are victors in the name of Jesus, that we would be ready to go to bring the light and love and the truth of your gospel, of your righteous gift to everyone and anyone. We give you praise in Jesus' name. If you need to pray with someone this morning,